Well, we looked in the first five lessons, because now we're getting to lesson six, and the first five lessons is mostly dealing with the Bible. We went back and gave a big overview, and we looked at Old Testament, New Testament, then we got details, and then we did the timeline and everything like that. And now, as we look at a new section, so to speak, this is about God. This is about our perfect God. We want to know, and th this is the God who gave us the Word that we need to know. We think of God, we say, well, He's the Creator, and He's the Redeemer, He's the one that works all things. But what is God really like? And before we can actually grasp the plan of God and all the things that we're going to look at as we go through our study, we need to see what God is like. And so we realize this, and I've got it for you right there. Let me get this on up here. We realize that we are finite. We are finite, and God is infinite. When you think about that, we are so limited. We're finite. I mean, think about it. We, we had a beginning. We won't have an ending, but we had a beginning, and we're finite, and our knowledge, and our wisdom, and our capacities are just limited, but God is infinite. There is no limitations. I mean, the only limitations that God has, because some people say, can God do anything? And the answer is no. He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't go against his character. can't go against a promise. So if God makes a promise, it can't, he can't change that promise. And if he, his character, he, somebody said, well, can God do anything? No, because he can't lie. He can't, can't sin. So there, you know. Uh, so when you think about God, he is, we're limited, but he is infinite. It's so powerful. We never, let, let me tell you, we're going to study and we're going to look at some attributes and things about God in our lesson. And yet we could say, oh yeah, well I know about God. Well, no, actually we don't. I mean, we just barely know anything about him. And he is so amazing. We'll spend the whole rest of our lives trying to study everything about the Bible, about God, about everything. And we're just limited because he's God and we're, and we're not. And so there's, there's two truths to think about. One is that to know and understand the person and work of God is the most important thing in life. Listen, for us to know who he is and what he did, that is the key. In fact, that all comes back to worship. Because what is worship? Worship is responding to God, who he is and what he's done. We're responding to him as the eternal son of God. And what has he done? He died and rose again to give us eternal life. So to know and understand the person and work of God, the person, the eternal son of God, and the work, he died and rose again, giving us eternal life. That's the most important thing in life. Most people, many people, they come into the world, they reject God, they, they don't believe anything, but we would say that's the most important thing. The second thing is that our knowledge of God, knowing Him, will ultimately affect the way we live. Supposed to. I mean, I know sometimes, I know things about God, and I still disobey Him. I still go wild and go crazy and all that. We do. But most of the time, when we begin to know what God is really like, and to know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering, and all of that, it's ultimately supposed to affect the way we live. And so we're going to go, as you know, to the Scripture to figure out what about God? What is He like? And those kind of things. So let's talk about man. Man as a whole has responded to God. I mean, you, you may think that some people say there is no God, but there's a small percentage of people that say there is no God. There are a lot of people who worship all kind of different things, and a lot of people make up gods in their own mind. But when you really think about it, there's not a lot of so-called atheists who say, we don't believe there's any God at all. Uh, so we look at it. Let's talk about how man has responded to, to God in a number of ways. And I've given you four. The first one is polytheism, which means that there are many gods. And behind every event or object, usually there's a god. And if you, if you go into, uh, uh, you remember the, uh, the time of the Greeks and the Romans, I mean, they all had gods. 
Because you go to Corinth, and they said there was a God for every house. And if you remember, Paul found the thing that said the statue to the unknown God because they had so many gods, they didn't want to forget one and, and make the God mad, so they put to a statue to the unknown God. Of course, Paul came in and said, let me tell you who that unknown God is. And anyway, so polytheism is there are many gods behind every event or object. There's something like a God. And, and so people say there are many gods. The second one is what we call materialism, and that, that's not wanting material things. Materialism is that all matter is self-functioning. The creation itself is God. And, and there are some people who would say, well, this, this universe is all there's ever been and all there ever will be, and the universe is some kind of God. And, and as you know, in, in a lot of different religions, there's think, people who say the goal is to get one with the universe and one with everything like that. So that's materialism. The third one is what we call pantheism. And most of what you know, pantheism, uh, theism means God, pan is the Greek word for all. So all is God. Everything is God. God is in everything. They would say that this table is God, and that you're God, and this is God, and God is in everything. That's called pantheism. Sometimes people will, uh, I remember a person came to me and said, you know, God is the air that we breathe. I said, no, no, he's not. He's not, your, he's not the air that you breathe. He created the air you breathe. He's not the air. God's not the tree. God's not the clouds. God created those. So pantheism is that God is in everything. And one other view is monotheism, which is basically saying there's one God. Now, that sounds good to us. We say, yeah, that's right, there is one God. But there's other religions. Islam has one God. And so you've got to be careful just because they say there's one God. It may not be the true God. And so that there's four ways that people have taken God and looked at it. If you go to Romans chapter 1, I didn't turn there, but in Romans chapter 1, 21 through 23, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about how that man takes, you know, man rejects God in one sense and changes the glory of God into something like a bird or a creeping thing or, or you know, so they just change God. And, and so that, that's what people do. And uh, now let's talk about that. What is God like? What is the true God like? And we have to go to the written revelation. And so one of the first things we need to do is the Bible talks about, or we say that the Bible talks about Trinity. And when we say Trinity, Trinity means three in one. So Trinity means three in one. It is one God and three persons. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. When we talk about this, there is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what's that? There's one God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we can't grasp that. Remember, He's infinite, we're finite. We'd say, that, that, how does that, how is three and one at the same time? And, but one of the great truths is I'll say to people, is the Father and the Son the same thing? And the answer is no. The Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. They're not the same. And yet, there's one God in three persons. Not three gods, one God in three persons. Now, for us to grasp that, you, you really can't. You can believe it. And the Bible talks about one God in three persons. But for us to say, oh, I, I understand that. I, I can't understand it. In the same way, I can't understand how Jesus is God and man. <clears throat> and you could say, well, he's half God, half man. That's one thing. But we're not talking about that. He's completely God and completely man. And so that doesn't add up either. And how can God be the sovereign ruler of all things and work everything according to the counsel of His will and you make decisions and you're responsible for your decisions. We say, well, I don't know how that works either. And so when we really get down to it, there's a lot of things we don't really grasp. And so the whole idea of the Trinity, and, and I've had people come up and say, well, Trinity isn't in the Bible. Well, not the Word, 
But the concept of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons uh, is there. In fact, let me uh, just show you this. When the, when we, it, here's, here's the three, here's Ephesians, we won't turn there, but Ephesians 4, 6, is there's, there's one God and Father, and it's talking about there's only one God. And Father, so the Father Himself is God. See, one Father, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all. Then you get right here to Hebrews one eight. The Son is God. The Father's God, but the Son is God. But of the Son, He says, "Your throne, O God, is forever." He's talking about the Son, and He calls the Son God. And then, if you look at Acts, the Holy Spirit is God, because Peter said to Ananias, "Why have Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the precious? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to." God and so the there's those three things Ephesians four six is the Father's God Hebrews one eight the Son is God Acts five three and four then that the Holy Spirit is God and so they are there's that's true L- look at this right here and this this when people say show me the Trinity I say okay yeah I'll show you the Trinity look at there after being baptized Jesus who's that that's the Son. Came, and he's God, I came up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God. Who's that? Holy Spirit. He's got the Spirit of God descended him, and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, who's, who's speaking? The Father. In that passage, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me read this to you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You can write this one down if you want to. Verse 14. Listen to how Paul ends 2 Corinthians. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Son, and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's the Spirit, be with you all. He names all three of them right there. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It's the very last verse in 2 Corinthians. So when people want to say, well, you know, the Bible never says Trinity, of course it doesn't say Trinity, Uh, you know. But uh, it almost doesn't actually say rapture. It has different words that talk about that, and people want to get all bent out of shape. But the truth is, does the Bible show one God in three persons? It does. And see, he never says there are three gods. There always is one God, but he's in three persons. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about the Old Testament. Let's talk about what we find there. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah, yeah but let, let's talk about it first of all. The Old Testament chose the Trinity. Now, I've had people say, you know, in the Old Testament, there's the Father, and then and the Holy Spirit's not even hardly mentioned in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you get Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Well, the Old Testament has, has it as well. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, what does it say? God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, but the word God there is plural. It's Elohim. The, the singular form of God is El. And this, uh, every time the true God is mentioned in the Old Testament and he's called God, it's plural always. It's Elohim. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go to Genesis 1-2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord was, uh, was hovering over the face of the deep. So right at the very beginning of the Bible, you have, you have God, what we might call God the Father, and then there's God the Spirit. Look at this, Genesis 1-26. Do you remember what this says? And it says, and, and God said, Let us make man in our, what? Image. Let us. Who's the us? It can't be angels. Angels didn't create. Angels didn't, didn't do that. So the us there is who? It's got to be the Father, Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let us create man in our image. Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Now watch this. The Hebrew one for there is the word ahad. 
which means a cluster. There was a one that just meant like a single thing. There was also a one that like, you might say, give me some of those, give me a, one of those grape things. You know, what you're meaning, there's a whole bunch of cluster of grapes, right? Not one grape. And so when it said, hear, O Lord Israel, the Lord your God is one, it's one, and it it's actually a plural aspect of it. Listen to this. This is Proverbs, which you may have read this one before. This is Proverbs 30. The writer, of course, is writing, and he says this. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Well, we could say, well, uh, I guess God, okay? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? God. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? God. Who has established the ends of the earth? God. What's his name or his son's name? That's Proverbs 30, verse 4. A lot of people miss that one. Let me read you one more. This is Isaiah 48. And here's, here's somebody talking. And, and, and then it gets to the end and it says, Come listen to me. For the first I've not spoken in secret. For the time it took place I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me. The one speaking is God. But he says, now the Lord God has sent me. So who could, he, who could the Lord God be sending who says the Lord God has sent me? It's going to be the Son. And then listen, and he has sent me and his Spirit. What was that Isaiah 48, verse 16. So what you find there is God sends me and the Spirit, which is the Messiah. So all three of them are in that one aspect. So it's pretty powerful. When people want to say uh, there's more than, if you have more than one, that means there's more than one God. No, there's one God who exists in three persons. I cannot comprehend it. I believe it, and I see it all through the Scripture. Yes? Can I ask you a question about Christ's attributes, given that he's God? Okay, yeah, we're going to get all the attributes, but what? Uh huh. Right. There, there's the old, the old, the old thing was: was Jesus able not to sin, or not able to sin? That's theological arguments throughout history. Was Jesus just able not to sin? In other words, when temptation came, he said, "I'm not going to sin." Or was he not able to sin? I, I take the view that he's not able to sin because he's the eternal son of God. Even though he's the God-man, he's still God-man. And so I, I take it that Jesus Christ could not have sinned. Now, just because uh, you can't sin doesn't mean you can't be tempted. That's one thing. I, people say, well, if he couldn't sin, he couldn't be tempted. Yes, he could. Temptation is there. Okay, let's look. Let's look at some names. You ready? This is the fun part. Let's look at some names in the Old Testament, names of God. Here's the first one. It's El, E-L, and it's the Hebrew name for God, and it's singular. How about El Shaddai? El, El is God, and Shaddai, actually, well, it means mountain or breast. So when he says El Shaddai, he's the, the God of the breast or the God of the mountain, either one. That's what, so El is the singular for God. Here's the next word, Elohim. Which is plural. It takes L and you put O-H-I-M on the end of it. And it makes the plural form. Cherubim. 
a cherub and a cherubim. Cherubim is plural of cherub. So Elohim is the plural form of God. This is Old Testament. Are you ready for the next one? Here's Adonai. You, we've heard people sing songs with Adonai and all of that. This means master and Lord. It's translated. And by the way, let me put it right here for a second. It's always translated. This will help you when you see in the Bible and you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D. It's the capital L and little O-R-D. That's Adonai. And it means master. It means Lord. It, it means God. It's just a, a different name. And then there's one more name, and it's called Y-H-W-H. It's really this word right here. Whoops. I hadn't written it in a long time. That's the Hebrew word Y-H-W-H. goes this way. This is the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It always is a personal name for God. It comes from Hayah which means I am. So when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am who I am. I am sent you. Tell him that I am sent you. It means the ever existing one is translated L-O-R-D. So I just want you to see that. Those are the four key names that you find in the Old Testament. El, Elohim, Adonai, and Yahweh. Now you've heard people say Jehovah, Jehovah God. Well, in reality... When most people, when they want to say Jehovah, they're really wanting to say this name right here. But the Jewish people would never pronounce this name. So we're not even sure how to say it. It's Y-H-W-H. Some people say Yahweh, but nobody knows exactly how to pronounce it. So where did you get Jehovah? Well, what is that they did is they took... The, these are consonants. The Hebrew is made up of consonants. In fact, there's usually three. And then, then you take the three consonants and you add the things to it. And what their vowels are not even written. If you look at Hebrew, they, they, their vowels are not written. They just know them. Well, it, we don't know them. And so when you study Hebrew in, in seminary and things like that, the vowels are pointed. Like there might be two little dots here or a little thing right there. And that tells you whether what something is. And, and so what they decided to do to come up with the word Jehovah, they took the, 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 the like this is Jehovah, this is a J, even though it's a Y, it's like a J, J-A-H-O, this is, this is a, actually a V, the W, V, V, Wittenberg, Germany, that's where that comes from, a V, and w, it's a A-H. And so they took the, the vowels from this word and the constants from this word, put them together to come up with the word we say Jehovah. Sometimes it's got an E there instead of an A. But anyway, so when you hear somebody say Jehovah God, even Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah's Witnesses come in and say, Jehovah's the God of the Old Testament, and ask them, who are you talking about? And they don't know. They don't know. They don't know that Jehovah is actually a combination of Adonai and YHWH. Yes? So it's just a cacophony of two different it is. It's taking two words and putting them together. Where, where did this word even come from? It came from these two words, and they didn't want to say that word, so they came up with this. So that's how they got it. And a lot of our Bibles will say Jehovah. And you've heard people say, like, Jehovah Jireh, or Jehovah Sabbath, or Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Jireh means God provides. The Jews that didn't want to say it to his question are the ones who made it up. Why wouldn't they say it? No, the Jews. The Jews. Jews people, they wouldn't say this name. Uh, as time went by, yeah, they would they could they could come in with that. 
because it's the name of God. And it's too, it's, this is the personal name of God. And it's, it's too holy. It's too holy to say it. Sometimes you'll see things written and they'll do this. And they'll put a little... Dad, that's supposed to be God. But they won't put the O in there to say God because it's going back to this name right here. So it's a very powerful truth. Now, so there's names like Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Shalom and El Shaddai and El Elon. Those are just all names of God in the Old Testament. So if you put El Elon, which means up high, El is the name for what? It's God, God of high, the high God. El Shaddai. El means God. Shaddai means mountain or breast. So he's the one. Basically, that means who provides because he's the strength. And so that's, that's why you get those kind of names. And it'll say something like, and so they named that place Bethel. El means what? God. Beth. Bayat means house. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethel, God's house, house of God. Bethel means God's house. And so when, jo- when they were leaving and he- they'd stop at Bethel, they called it Bethel because that's God's house. That's where they saw God. So pretty, pretty neat stuff, really, when you think about it. So let's then, let's, the, we, haven't, we haven't got some New Testament, right? Okay, here we go. Let's get New Testament names. Here's the, the key one. It's theos, T- T-H-E-O-S. It's the normal word for God. It could be a false God or a true God, but a lot of times, of course, it means the true God. It's theos. And then there's the word kurios. And this, it sounds funny, but it means Lord or Master or Deity. The word, if I met you and I'm in first century or whatever, I'm speaking Greek, and I might say, ah, kurios. And I'm, I'm meaning that like, sir. Yes, sir. Nice to meet you, sir. But the word actually meant Lord or Deity. And when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, you're talking about Lord as Deity. Jesus, think of the name, Lord Jesus Christ. Kyrios, Lord, which means deity. Jesus means Savior, and Christ means anointed one. Because we got it. There's Jesus right there. It means Savior. You shall call this name Jesus. It's the same name as Yeshua or Joshua. Same name. So it means Savior. So if you have a son or somebody that you've named Joshua, you've named them basically the Old Testament name of Jesus, Yeshua. And then there's Christ, which means the anointed one of God. So he is actually the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord who is deity, Jesus who is Savior, Christ who is the anointed one of God. And so that's that some of the names in the Old Testament. I mean, excuse me, in the names of the New Testament. And uh, people get all bent out of shape when people say, Lord Jesus Christ, you might have make him Lord. Look, this means God. You're going to make him God? He's already God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God. So... That, so we can see from the names that he is the ever-existing, all-powerful, almighty God. And what happens is the cults, that's when they take and they take something about God and they change it. That a heresy is a truth taken way too far. And they'll begin to say, well, Jesus himself wasn't really God. He was claiming to be, you know, and they just begin to change all those things. So what, there's a word that the Bible uses a lot of times that has become very popular in our culture. And I don't really ever say the word, because, but a lot of people use it all the time. They'll say, you know, that piece of pie was awesome. Oh, that was awesome. Well, do you know what awesome means? It means awe-inspiring. And the Bible says God is awesome, that God is awe-inspiring. And when it says, uh, 
you know, God-fearer, or they feared God. That means they saw him as awesome. They saw him as awe-inspiring. Not afraid of him like, oh, we got to get in a corner, but like, oh, my gracious, he's God. He's so powerful. So I, I'm real careful. I, I might think it's the greatest piece of pie I ever had, but I'm probably not going to call it awesome because I try to reserve awesome for, for our God. He's, the, he's the, the awesome one. And so as we think about this, so we've got God, and then let's talk about beings for just a minute. There are three types of beings that you find. There is God, God you know, he's the God being. There is angelic beings, and there are human beings. And in reality, you look at it, and who's the most powerful being of all? God. Who's the next most powerful being? Angels. Angels are so powerful. Remember one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers? I mean, the angels are powerful. And then there's human beings. But one of the great truths is this. Look at this. Do you not know we will judge angels? And you realize from Hebrews that they're ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Angels actually serve us. They serve God, but they serve us. So when people get all, you know, been out of shape, and I say, look, there's God and angels and man, and angels are so powerful, but in reality, angels serve God, and angels actually serve us. And one day, we will judge all that. And so it's a, kind of a powerful thing. So when you think about God and angels and all of those things, <coughs> now, let's get to the part that's going to get really down to it, and that's going to talk about the attributes of God. And that's what this lesson really is, because lesson six deals with God, and, and we can't go into all kind of details, but I've got a good bit of stuff we'll throw out. I'll give you some verses, and I'll tell you, I'll say, write this verse down, write this verse down, because they're all good. So we're going to look at it in two different ways. We're going to look at seven attributes of his being. In other words, what is he like? Seven attributes of his being, and then we're going to look at seven attributes of his character. What, what does he do? What, what, what's he like? So the, the, t t tied in together with what, what's his being like, what's his character like. You, you, could, you could lump them all together. This is a way to try to just separate it a little bit because there's so much there. I mean, when you really think about it, we're fixing to say that in 14 things, we're going to tell you what God is like. I mean, think about that. That's like putting God in a box and saying, now here's the 14 things that make up God. That's not true. We're going to give you things that the Bible say about him, who he is, and what it is. So remember, he is the, the when you see, by the way, when you read your Bible, look at it in the future from now on. When you see all four capitals, it's referring to that word. And when you see a capital L and little O-R-D, it's referring to that word. So you, if you remember last uh Last Sunday, when uh, in Grow Group, many of you may have been there, not been there, but uh, Elijah goes up to the widow at Zarephath, and she says, oh, oh, something, something, you're the, the God of Israel, and she uses this name right there. She's calling him God. She's not Elijah, but she's calling Elijah's God the true God. She's using that name. So it's very, and the only way you can tell it in English is it's all L-O-R-D, all capitals. So the translators did it that way. All right, let's talk about it. Let's start with God, the attributes of God's being, and He is infinite. He is. God is infinite. And if you want to, the bottom line, He's beyond comprehension. And we can, in fact, that's what, we could stop right here and say, there's no sense in going through all the rest of the attributes because it's beyond our comprehension to understand them all anyway. But he is infinite. You can probably put this verse down, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That's the one that says, let, let me, Isaiah, 
I've got it right here, so I, no, I don't have to go real far. Isaiah 55. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. In fact, as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. When you say something like, God, why would you do this? Or what are you doing? He say, you, you can't grasp it. You can't understand it. I'm, I'm beyond you. I mean, that's what it really is. This verse right here. Oh, the depths of the riches, boast the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his ways fast binding out. I mean, he says this, oh, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable. You can say, well, I'm, I'm going to find out everything I can about God. Well, you can find out about God and what he's revealed to you, but he's so far behind us. We can't even start. I mean, when people say, well, God would never do something like that. We don't even know God. We just barely know him. He's so beyond us, we can't even imagine it. It's so amazing how powerful he is. And the, the book of Job talks about it. Can, can anything stop him? I, I could read this to you. Job, Job 11, 7 through 10. Listen to this. Can you, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The answer, of course, is what? No. Well, they're higher than the heavens. What can you do? It's deeper than you. Oh, what can you know? If you measure it, it's longer than the earth. It's broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain? You know what? He said, if God comes by and decides to call a meeting, guess what? You come into the meeting. I mean, that's what he's saying. It's powerful. Wow. He is so beyond us. And just realize this. You'll never understand him. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean it in a good way. We can know him and we can know his love and power, all that great stuff. But he's so beyond us. Uh, we just can't comprehend how great he is. We just can't. The second one is God is a spirit. That means he's a spirit being. He does not have a physical body. John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit being. Now, this is things that some people have never grasped or put it all together. Remember, you have the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, all spirit beings. And at a point in time in history, from all eternity, at a point in time in history, the Son left the glories of heaven, John 1.14, and became a person. So the Father and the Spirit, they don't have bodies. They're spirit beings. Some people have said, and I'm not saying this, I'm saying some people have said that when we get to eternity, the only member of the Godhead we'll really ever see is Jesus because the rest are spirit beings. Now, I don't know about that. I'm not saying that's true. I've just had people tell me that. And I'm going, well, I mean, let me think about it. But So God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm not going to take the time to, go, to uh, read these verses, but it's in Deuteronomy where he says, When I brought the nation of Israel to Mount Sinai and, and I gave them the law, they did not see any form of me. He said, because if I would have made some kind of form, they would have made an idol and worshipped that. That's what he says. He says, so there's no form. You're not going to see a form. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Wow. So, so far we got that, you know, what, the great stuff. You know, God is infinite. God's a spirit. Here's the th God is eternal. Now, this is different. We think about, you know, that we're going to go on forever, but eternal means you never had a beginning. You never have a beginning. You never, you've always existed. He's always been and always will exist. Now, I can grasp... In my mind, in my limited mind, I can grasp I'm, I'm going to keep on going. I can't grasp never have a beginning. 
that, that he's always existed. He's an eternal God. That's who he is. And, and we, have, we have no ending, but we did have a beginning. And in 1 Timothy 1.17, it just talks about the eternal God. And that's who he is. He is eternal. He deals with us in time. Listen, God is outside time. You know that. He's an eternal being. So he's not sitting here saying, oh, I wonder what they're going to do on, on next Saturday or next Sunday. He, he doesn't say, I wonder what happened here. I wonder what happened here. I wonder what I'm going to do here. Listen, he's outside of time. That's why Jesus is the Lamb of God that was what? Slam, sla slain when? Before the foundation of the world. As far as time is concerned, Jesus was slain before there was ever a creation. Because he's outside time. So I just, can you understand that? I can't. I'm going, I don't know what that means. But anyway, that's what we see. He has no beginning, has, has no ending in that sense. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from everlasting, and write that down. Psalm 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting to everlasting. Wow. Okay? So now, now we have God is omnipotent. Some people say omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. He's all-powerful. There are no, let me put it this way, all-powerful and no limitations. In, in Job 42, 2, he says you can do anything. He can do anything he wants to do. Now, let me ask you a question. Are there any limitations on God at all? Huh? Yeah, there are. And that's based on his character or his promises. He can't lie. He can't sin. He can't deny himself. So when we say that God is all-powerful, we don't mean that he could say, uh, I can lie and get away with it because I'm all-powerful, I can do anything I want to. No, that, that's contrary to his character. He can't go, he can't go contrary to his character. Uh, he's all-powerful. Can anything pluck you out of his hand? No, nothing, nothing. Nobody can pluck him out of my hand. My Father who gave to me is greater than all. Nobody can pluck him out of my Father's hand. That's what Jesus said. Romans 4, I love this verse, and you might put this one down. Romans 4, 20 and 21 uh, Abraham, it's where Paul is writing, but it says that Abraham considered that what God had promised to do, he was able. He was able to do whatever he promised to do. You know, think about promises for a second. What if I said to you, I promise I'll be at your house at 8 o'clock in the morning? I, I could try, I could say, you know, I, I get up, the car won't crank, I oversleep, I, I, I get sick. And, I, and, you know, you could say, well, that's right, because you don't control everything. But God does. If God says, I'll be there at 8 o'clock, nothing can stop him. First of all, he can't lie, so he's going to be there at 8 o'clock. And second is, nothing can stop him from being there at 8 o'clock. So when we make a promise, our promises are limited. Even as much as we say, oh, I promise you, I'll show up and I'll help you do this. Something could happen. Because we're not all powerful. But he is. He's all powerful. And he guarantees that he's going to carry out his plan. That's why I, I love the fact that when God, it says, God so loved the world, he gave his son. When the Bible says that I'm going to send the seed of woman, I'm going to send the seed of Abraham, I'm going to send the son of David, I mean, that's going to happen. You know, all the promises in the Old Testament are going to come true no matter what. That nothing can stop them, whatever God says. When he says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. You'll never perish because he's all powerful and whatever he says is true. Well, let's look at the next one because just looking at time. Next one is omnipresent. It means he's everywhere. Now, I, I, I don't grasp this one, I mean, because he's everywhere. First of all, G is Jesus inside of you? Yes. Yeah, so he's inside of you. Is the Father inside of you? Yeah, yeah, he is. Is the Holy Spirit inside of you? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, and he's everywhere. And, he, and so any believer, but then he's everywhere. There's no place you can go. In fact, he's everywhere. He's both far away and present. Psalm 139 says, where can I go? 
He said, if I go to the top of a mountain, he's not there. If I go to the deepest part of the ocean, he's, he's not. He, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Well, if I go to the top of the mountain, he's there. If I go to the deepest ocean, he's got there. If I run somewhere, no matter where I go, he is there. And that's good. And that's bad. In our minds, it's good because we're never away from him, but it's bad because you can't get away. And you could say, I want to go sin, but I don't want God to know. No, he's right there. There's no, I mean, you know, so in Psalm, that's a great verse there, Psalm 139. Uh, that, and, and by the way, Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24 says, Am I a God who is far away? Am I a God who is also near? Meaning he says, I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. So it's powerful. Powerful. He's all-powerful and he's omniscient. He knows everything. Or he's omnipresent. He knows everything. The, sick, the next one is omniscient. Which means he knows everything. He knows everything. Th this is the thing that that, that grasps me. And this is this is uh, by the way, this is another Psalm one thirty nine. <coughs> Psalm one thirty nine one through six talk about his omniscience, and Psalm thir one thirty nine starting verse seven talks about that his omnipresence. So he knows everything. Now, and and it's not subject. Psalm ninety four. It's not subject to time. What he knows is not subject to time. Let me tell you something. We talk about this, I think, one night. I don't know. We're here right now, right? God knew you are going to be here. Is that right? Since he knows everything. Did he know where you would have been if you weren't here? Does he know every possible combination of anything that could have happened that didn't happen? I mean, he knows everything. He could say, well, you're there, but you could have been over here. Because <laughs> he knows everything. He knows it, and it's not uh, subject to time, because he knows it all. Uh, that's why I love it when, you know, Jesus is doing something, and he, re he knows their minds. And he says, why did you say that? Or why did you think that? And they went, what? He said, which is it easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or tell him to get up and walk? Because he knew exactly what they were thinking. He knows everything. He knows everything about us. What is so amazing is he knows everything about us, and what does he do? He loves us. Beyond what we could imagine. Any of you that, if we all knew what we really are like, we would say, I'm not talking to them. And you would say, I don't even like JB. I mean, does it look right? So the greatest thing about it, he knows everything. Okay? Here's, uh, here's one more. God is immutable. Immutable means that he doesn't change. That's what it means. It means God is unchanging. He's reliable. He's consistent. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. Hebrews 13.8 says what? Jesus Christ the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. So he doesn't change in that way. James 1.17 is the, you know, the, the gifts and everything from God. And it comes down in which uh, God, there's no shadow of change. And so when God says something... We can count on it. He's reliable. He's consistent. And when we say unchanging, it doesn't mean he doesn't change the way he does things. But his character is unchanging. What he says, what he does, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so those are the seven attributes that we, we just talk about uh, his, 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 his being. Now, let's talk about character. Let's talk about, this is a little bit harder. When I, I look at this, it's a little bit unique. And so the attributes of his character, first of all, he's a personal God. He's a personal God. It's easy for the, us to think of God as some kind of impersonal thing, like he's far away and you never know him and you never talk to him and you just never see him. Well, first of all, God is not a force. He's not like Star Wars where the force is with you and there's a good and bad side to it. No, God is not a force. He's a personal being. In fact, look at this. God has a mind, 
Oh, the depths of riches boast of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He has a mind. He has emotion. God so loved the world. And he has a will. He is to will and to work of his good pleasure. So when you talk about that he's a personal God, he has a mind, he has emotion, he has a will. He, he knows us, he cares about us, he's detailed. Think about the tabernacle, how they built the tabernacle and all of the dimensions and all of the things. I mean, sometimes when I read it, the big part I like, like here's the altar, here's what this is. But then he starts talking about how many pieces of wood and how many hooks. And, and you start going, oh my gracious, alive. Because he's the God of detail. He is a personal God who knows us. And let me just tell you, what is so amazing is, when you look at religions of the world, they don't really have a personal God. They don't have any God that's personal. When you go back just to Greek mythology, all gods were were just big, strong, powerful people. They called themselves God, but they got tempers and mad and did all this bad stuff. And then you look at other religions, they don't have a personal God. You know, this is God, and He's personal, and He cares everything about you. He cares about everything. Thing that happens in our lives. Everything. The second one is God is righteous. That means he's always right. That means it's not just an absence of evil, but everything that he does is good and positive and right. He is a righteous God. That's why he's good in everything he does. That's why the Bible says God causes all things to work together for good. Sometimes we look at things and we see it looks bad, but God is, God is working it together for good. First John 1, 5, in him is light, and there is what? No what? No darkness. There's not darkness at all. And uh, he, Psalm eleven seven says, he is righteous and he loves righteousness. When I think about righteousness, I think about this. Let me just put this up here for just a second. When I think about righteousness, I think about God. And let's just put positive righteousness. And then here's us, and we're sinners. It's negative. And Jesus died on the cross and took our sin, but that doesn't make us positively righteous. It gets us back to even, so to speak, okay? So what do we need? The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, what do you get? His righteousness. That's called imputation. So his positive righteousness is given to us. And that's how we can be with him. And that's why... We, it says, you know, it talks about uh, he, he's the satisfactory payment. And then when you believe his, his, our faith is credited for righteousness, we get his righteousness. So if I ask this question, how many of you in this room are perfectly righteous? Every hand should go up. Every one of us in this room are perfectly righteous. I didn't say that you live righteously. I said you are perfectly righteous in your standing before God because he's given you his righteousness. Wow. We think about God. Here's the third one. The third one, he's just. And, and Romans 2.11 says he's impartial. There is no partiality with God. God looks on the what? The heart, not the outside. When they, remember when David, they were trying to pick who's going to be the next king. And he came and the first son went by, the second son went by, the third son. They were all good looking and everything. And he said, you got anybody left? And none of them and they brought in the young boy. And God said, you're looking at the outside. I look at the inside. He is just and fair. Now, by the way, let me just say this. He's just and fair. He's both just and justifier. And there's, we, we got to be real careful because we don't want the justice of God. We want the grace of God. Now, since God is just, he can't overlook sin. And so if a person says, I want justice, 
Like, no, no, not, not really, no. Because justice means you die and separated from God forever. Grace is said that God, who is just, poured out his wrath on his son, and so he is just by dealing with sin. But we don't have to take it. We get the grace of God. We get the mercy of God. And so God is a just God. God cannot overlook sin. God doesn't say people are great. He actually says people are sinful. And, and the heart is wicked and deceitful. But I love them so much, I still have to deal with sin because they've all sinned. So what am I going to do? I'm going to be a just God and, take, and deal with the penalty of sin. And they deal with his son. So it's powerful. That's why in Romans 3 it says he can be both just and justifier of those who believe in Jesus. The fourth one here is that God is love. This one we see all the time. 1 John 4, 8. Love, divine love expects nothing in return. It's unconditional. It's unchanging. I think the greatest thing, the greatest thing that we can grasp is this. That no matter what you do, no matter whether you're living godly and righteously or slime pit of the bottom, God's love never changes. He loves you 100% always. He, the person who is an unbeliever and is in open, rebellious sin against God, God loves him to the 100%. When we become a believer, God loves us to the 100%. When we live godly as a believer, God loves us to the 100%. When we live ungodly as a believer, God loves us to the 100%. It doesn't change. Now, with us, it does. If, I, if somebody does something to hurt each other, you, you're going to say, I don't like them as much as I used to. Or I don't, you know, I just don't. God, nothing changes. And sometimes we think that when we blow it, that God's love for us has changed. It has never changed. He is a God of love. First John 4, 8 talks about 4, 8 and 9. And this is love, not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How the old saying is, how can a loving God allow people to go to hell? He doesn't make people go to hell. He's provided every way that a person can have eternal life. All they have to do is take a gift. So God is not the one that sends people to hell. People go to hell because they do not believe in Jesus Christ to give them life. Because they have to have life. The next one is God is sovereign. This is one that some people, they make this the, the overlying archer, everything of God. They say, God is sovereign. And everything they talk about is the sovereignty of God. This is just one of his attributes. And that's why you have to be real careful when people start talking about the attributes of God. Because they want, they'll say, God is love. That's the most important thing. Well, no, God is sovereign. That's the most important thing. Well, no, God is righteous. They all blend together. You can't just say one or the other. God is sovereign. There's nothing outside the plan of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 talks about that uh, he is the sovereign one. And in verse 11, it says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, he, is, he has given us decision-making capacity. I think the most, uh, the, the thing that's hard for me to understand in the same way that I don't understand Trinity is how that God is sovereign and he works everything. Everything fits in his plan. He has a plan that's coming to pass. And yet there's man, there's us, and we have decision-making capacity. And we can make any decision, whether it's right or wrong. We can choose to sin or not to sin. We can do this. And yet we have freedom, and we're accountable for our freedom. And yet everything we do fits in this right here. I don't grasp it. 
It's not possible to grasp it. That's why the people who have spent all their lives on one side making God sovereign and everything has to fit in the sovereignty, and then on the other side, you got all these people saying God's free will, everybody's got free will. You know, you got the Arminian, you got the Reformed, the, uh, you know, the Calvinist, and then they're both wrong. They're wrong. It all comes together in the middle. And it's not one way or the other, it's both. And it's just beyond our comprehension. And uh, he is so amazing. And that takes us to the next one. He's so amazing. He's wise. He's wise. Everything that he does is not only just good, it's all the best. 1 Corinthians one twenty five talks, God only wise. Proverbs 3.19, by wisdom, God made the world. I love this right here. By, by, right here. He has the best possible plan. You understand that? He has the best possible plan. I want to throw out a scenario for you. Some people could say, wouldn't it have been better to put Adam and Eve in the garden and Adam and Eve would have never sinned? Wouldn't that have been a better world? Wouldn't that have been a better situation? Wouldn't that be better? And I say, no. And some people say, why? Because there wouldn't be any sin. There wouldn't be any death. I said, yeah, but there would be Adam and Eve and they would know God as the creator and the provider. We know God is the creator and the redeemer. God so loved, God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, what? How does he demonstrate his love? By giving us food? No, God demonstrates his love by what? He died for us. And so I, when I look at it, I see even though it's a, it looks terrible, God's plan ultimately probably the best plan for us to understand the love of God and who he is. Now, I, I mean, I wish, nobody, I wish there wasn't any sin, but if you said, well, God, you didn't, you didn't do it very good. You could have had a better plan. He said, no, no, after this is the best plan. Okay. Then we get to truthful. God is truthful. Whatever he says is true. Titus chapter 1 says, verse 2 says, God who cannot lie. You know what that means? That means John 3.16 is true. That means John 3.18 is true. Whoever believes will not, is not condemned, but whoever believes not is what? Condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's powerful. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I, by grace you're saved through faith. All those are true statements. And that's why when people say things like, well, how do we know that? I say, well, because God is truthful. Whatever he says is right. And we have to trust that. So when we, when we begin to look at God, and tonight we just barely touched on it, y'all. I mean, we, I mean, I just put 14 things down. You might come up with other attributes. You might come up and look at it a different way. You can go, and I've got in the library some of my books. There's some, uh, some theology-type books and some uh, the systematic theology books, and you can go look them up, and they might say, here's God's attributes or here's his character. Stuff. They may have it a little bit differently, but I think we've put it together where you can just get a big view of who he is. And when we, when we study the Bible... We start seeing his love and his grace and his mercy and his justice and his omniscience and his omnipresence and, and all of those things. And we, we have to trust him. And so I've got down at the bottom, we must realize that God is a personal God who made us. Look at there. He is a personal God who made us, who knows us, and wants us to know him. Powerful truths. And so one of the verses, I think, for next week is Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his unfathomable his ways. Or I put one of the translations I learned is as ways past finding out. You can't figure them all out. When people try to figure out God and say, well, I'm going to figure this out, you can't figure it out. 
go to the Word, trust the promises, live for Him, but you can't figure all the stuff out because He's so far beyond us. Uh, this is a long one, but it's powerful. It says, Therefore, beloved, knowing before Him, be on your guard, lest you be carried away with the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the what? The knowledge, grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.